So we are continue, continuing in the Midrash Rabbah on Esther. We're doing number 12 in the third parsha and in the art school edition, that is page 42.1. And it starts in the left column where we're not gonna read this like all the words in the Hebrew, so to speak, but we're just gonna do, meaning literally, but we're gonna do sort of outside that at the time that King Ahasuerus was demanding that Vashti be brought in front of him, the Megillah mentions the names of the advisors. And the rabbis here homiletically interpret the names of the advisors to be relevant to the fact that at this specific moment in history, Vashti is being summoned in a pretty degrading manner. She's supposed to appear in front of the king and all of his friends and their party without clothing. And so what the Midrash talks about over here is that really all of this was meant as a punishment to the house of Nebuchadnezzar from which Vashti, Vashti stemmed. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who conquered uh, the Holy Temple and destroyed Jerusalem. And this is now, so to speak, the comeuppance for the house of Nebuchadnezzar through his descendant Vashti, who is the current queen of Persia. Persia. And so the various names of the advisors indicate that the house of Nebuchadnezzar should be plundered, um, also to destroy his house, also to devastate, and that essentially God is saying, I'm going to make a mockery of Ahasuerus and his queen, Vashti, um, and even the commoners, people who perform menial labors, such as the female weavers who stand behind the weaving beams when they would put together fabric and clothing, even those people will mock the great dignitaries that are Ahasuerus and Vashti. And the reason for this mocking is that Ahasuerus is asking Vashti to do something which is basically beyond the pale for a specific reason, as we're going to see in a minute, and so this is ultimately kind of a prelude to the downfall of Vashti herself. That happens imminently. And then it has a long-term effect of getting rid of the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so now let's go to the bottom right of 42.1, the paragraph on the top, but the bottom of the top, so to speak, uh, just above the notes. And the Midrash points out that when, again, Ahasuerus summons Vashti, he has seven chamberlains, seven advisors or servants that are supposed to bring Vashti to him. So the question is, who cares that it's seven? Why, why, why does the Megillah state explicitly seven servants? And to that, the Midrash says, it actually teaches us that a kingdom does not appoint less than seven chamberlains before the king to serve it. So a king always needs seven direct servants to attend to his needs and his requests. And so over here, Ahasuerus is talking to these seven servants and saying that he wants the seven of them to go carry out his order to bring Vashti. And by the way, we have a sort of a, a hint to this and it comes up in various ways in the Talmud and in the Midrashim, that earthly royalty is a reflection of heavenly royalty, and God himself who runs the world 
is served by what seems to be the sun, the moon, and the five visible planets. Those are the sun and the moon and the five visible planets are seen as God's like chamberlains, so to speak, carrying out his will in the world in order to have the world function properly um, for everything that the sun and the moon and the planets provide. Okay, so even if it would be possible to accomplish bringing Vashti with one or two, the Medrash is going out of its way, uh, according to the, the Megillah is going out of its way, according to the Midrash, to tell us that there were seven servants. Now we're going to come back and discuss both the concept of destroying Vashti as the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, as well as this message of the seven servants. But let's read a little bit more of the story. So now we turn to page 42.2 at the top. And the Midrash is seeking to explain what in fact prompted Achashverosh to call Vashti this way. Yes, uh, we have a question from Ethan. Sorry to interrupt, Rabbi. I had a question that relates to two pieces you discussed there. Um, first, it, was it common for, or was it practice for the Israeli, or for, for the, the the Jewish kings, for Saul and David to to also have seven advisors in that fashion? Yeah. Like, was that was that something that brought over? Um, yes, it, it, actually. The Talmud does talk about this in general. Um, there's a concept of three, five, and seven, a sort of a process that's done in the royalty that goes to three advisors, five advisors, and then seven. And in fact, that's the way uh, some of the intercalation happens when the Jewish courts decide things related to the calendar. Somehow, sometimes it happens in that kind of a deliberation process. And three, five, and seven actually are the numbers of words in the Birkat Kohanim. Uh, first sentence is three, second sentence is five, and the third sentence is seven. And so this is a concept that comes up in other places. I can't tell you specifically the seven advisors per king. And it also seems like it's kind of a minimum of seven. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the other piece was um, when we were studying this earlier uh, with Vashti going in front of the, the crowd uh, completely naked, we discussed that it was, it seemed more. Um, it seemed more cultural, like a culturally appropriate, that that was something that they did. But then in this part, it seems to be being highlighted that it was kind of beyond the pale. Um, is there any conflict there or, or is there a different understanding? I think that um, we're gonna see in a moment, that's a good question. Uh, we're gonna see in a moment that we're talking about utterly and completely naked which is um, kind of a humiliation instead of being something more uh, provocative, you know, with some clothing, we're gonna, we're gonna see about that in a minute, okay? And we'll see if, if we think it's a contradiction or not. Really, we would need to look back. So that's definitely a good point. Okay. Thank you. We'll have to, we'll have to see if we can discern more about that. So thank you, very good. Um, also, great job at using the hand signal. Okay, so now here in number 13, the Midrash tells us that there's a background to what prompted Achashverosh, this is page uh, 42.2, what prompted Achashverosh to show off Vashti in front of his many guests is also a contrast to what the Jewish people do. And there's even a background to what the Jewish people do. But the language of the Midrash is that when the Jewish people celebrate, they eat and drink, 
and are joyous, they bless, they praise, and they exalt the Holy One, blessed be He. So we're familiar with that, with the concept of the Shabbos table and a Yom Tov table where we have songs and we also have Divrei Torah. The songs are very much praising Hashem um, and the Torah. But when the other idolatrous nations of the world eat and drink, they occupy themselves with indecent matter. So a typical subject of conversation is, oh, the, Me the Median women are the most beautiful in the world. And the other one says, oh, the Persian women are the most beautiful. And then Ahasuerus turned to this a table of, uh, I guess, conversers and said to them, listen, you are all kind of making a mistake because the vessel that I use is neither a Median nor a Persian, but in fact, a Chaldean. And she's the most beautiful. You want to see her? Right? You want to see her? To which they said, well, yeah, but, you know, we don't want any of this costume business. We don't want to, you know, be fooled by clothing or adornments or other thing. It's got to be utterly 100% seeing. Uh, so that's the condition to which he said, yeah, well, you got it. As you requested is what will be done. So even that indicates that that wasn't exactly the norm, right? Um, and we're going to see more about that in a second. Uh, now, one of the reasons that we're mentioning all of this and that there's even a background to this is that one of the things that the Jews did improperly was to attend the party of Ahasuerus. And over here, we're saying, hey, Jews celebrate and party completely differently than the other idolatrous nations. And so what the Midrash really seems to be saying here is that's true, that in the norm, right, the Jews celebrate appropriately. But I guess once in a while, they can be tempted and get off the rails and celebrate inappropriately. So in some total, you know, the Jews do have a merit that the way that they normally celebrate is much more edified and appropriate, and that that is a merit to be saved from their enemies. In this particular moment, however, what is happening is that the Jewish people were attending, and because of that, Haman will rise to power, and they will suffer the decree. But at the end of the day, they're going to be saved, and the seeds of their being saved is being planted at this very party where Vashti is being called upon to show up this way. And because of what her response is, she's gonna end up dead. And then we end up with Esther. So you kind of have to look at this multi-layered story with the backgrounds and understand that there's different things at play at the same time. On the one hand, the Jews kind of deserve to be destroyed because of participation in Ahasuerus' party. On the other hand, since that's not the way the Jews normally celebrate, they also deserve to be eventually saved, okay? So anyways, that was the deal. She has to be there 100% uh, without clothing. And then we turn to page 43.1. And it says over there that she actually asked to dress up more like a woman of a night in a corset, you know, some clothing. That was her request after getting that demand from Ahasuerus. But they did not allow her even that nominal, minimal gesture. Right. So she said, you know what, if that's the case, then at least let me go in without my crown, because this is just like a degradation of the of the queen and the kingdom. To which they said, yeah, but then maybe you're just going to use any old maidservant and it won't really be your queen. How are we going to really know that she's the queen if she doesn't wear the crown? So then the midrash says, yeah, OK, but maybe 
they'll put the crown on some sort of maidservant, Chamberlain, and not the queen. How do you know that just because she's wearing a crown and nothing else, that that's the queen? And that over here, the Midrash says the Talmudic principle is that a commoner is not allowed to make use of the royal clothing. And in fact, that's part of the reward that we find later in the story where Mordechai is given the privilege of putting on the royal clothing as a special reward, but typically that's never allowed to be done. And so therefore the end of the story uh, is that Ahasuerosh was demanding that Bashti appeared without corset and without crown, but completely 100% without clothing. Okay, but as the Megillah tells us, Vashti refused, she refuses. So now the Midrash makes the point on, this is page 43.1, uh, the right side, number 14, the right side at the top of the page. Vashti actually sent the message and told him words that were very harsh, but they were also very couched. So she didn't say it so explicitly. She kind of hinted to it. We don't know what the hint was, but the idea behind the hint was that Vashti says to him, hey, buddy, husband, if these people that you're showing me off to think of me as beautiful, they're going to want to have their way with me and they're going to get rid of you. Right? They're going to they're get rid of you so that they can do what they want with me. And if they don't find me appealing, so then it's just a degradation to you. I'll be laughing behind your back. Ah, the king has this uh, joker, you know, ugly queen. So therefore it's a lose-lose. And apparently he didn't get the hint and then she sent it explicitly and it still didn't penetrate his um, inebriated brain. Okay, because at this time we know that he had been drinking. Then Vashti sent a second message to him after Ahasuerus was not absorbing what she was telling him. She said, buddy, you were the head of the stables of my father. Now her father was Belshazzar and his grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. You were basically a glorified stable boy because you were ahead of the stables. And so you were used to women being thrown at you um, of a common nature, you know, women of the night. And, you know, apparently you haven't forgotten your history because you're thinking that this is appropriate behavior, right? And you're just keeping your old patterns. But that didn't sway Ahasuerus either. And so now we turn the page to 43.2. And she sent a third message to Ahasuerus saying, listen, even the people that my grandfather Nebuchadnezzar used to punish the ones who were convicted and sentenced to death, he didn't kill them, he didn't execute them without clothing. Even they wore clothing to retain at least some dignity even in their ignominious death by execution. And therefore it's a terrible thing that you are uh, choosing to do by asking for this you know, complete unclothing of me. Um, I think we can skip that next part. Yeah, we can skip that next part. So I think what we should do now is talk about this and then we'll see if we'll get to number 15. So the bottom line is that we have this whole story happening of Ahasuerus asking for this from Vashti. Yeah, I think we, we do wanna do 15. Uh, the whole story where he's asking for her to appear unclothed in order to kind of you know show everyone how, how pretty she is and that she's the most beautiful and of course, 
That's the vessel that he uses. You know, that's not meant to be taken lightly. What he's really trying to do is assert his power, his greatness, his domination. And this is especially important to him, by the way, because the real kingship, monarchy, blood comes from Bashti. And he's saying he's really the ruler of her. She's the blue blood, if we borrow that expression, right? He was, in fact, a glorified stable hand. And so therefore, he's trying to assert the domination and his power. Now, as we've spoken about recently, he ultimately wanted to oust God as the king. That was the whole idea of using the temple uh, vessels at this party. And even now, what he's doing is trying to assert his power over his wife, who was the real royalty. And of course, he's thwarted, and that gets him very angry because she refuses. So she doesn't just acquiesce to this request. She actually stands her ground. And because of that, he gets very angry. Now, the Midrash definitely seems to understand that she's ultimately killed. But in number 15, it talks about the anger of the king. And I just want to read this, and then I'll get to sort of like a little overall explanation and then take any questions and comments before we move on to our Devar Torah. So number 15 says that at this moment, when the, when the Megillah says that he became very angry, this is the left side of page 44 at the top, an angel that was appointed in charge of wrath appeared and, and uh, Hashem uh, told this angel to go and blow a gust of wind into Ahasuerus's belly, blow his ashes, and throw sulfur into his stove. So basically, let's add fire to the fire. He's angry, but the Megillah is stating that he's extremely angry, and basically God is getting him boiling hot mad, even beyond his, so to speak, regular anger. And the reason for that seems to be because God wants that Vashti should be killed, right? So, so God is flaming the already existing flame of fire. God is fanning the already existing flame of fire in order to make it that Vashti will be killed. And then the Midrash continues that, in fact, all the years from the moment that Vashti was killed until Esther became queen, the wrath of Ahasuerus did not subside. And the Midrash goes on to challenge that because it says the next day, so to speak, or soon after when Ahasuerus calmed down, he remembered what he did and then he went looking for another wife. But the Midrash says that that calming of anger was actually a somewhat of a mollification, but he really was still seething inside and that his wrath only completely went away with the execution of Haman. That's what the Midrash says. And that, by the way, was four years later. So from the time that Vashti refused to be brought in front of the king and the king got angry, and God, so to speak, added this extra anger through the angel of wrath, he was angry for four years. Even though he remarried and had a party, he was still angry. Now, the Midrash uh, commentaries over here they have an explanation, um, and I think that they try to say that there were two separate angers. One is that he was angry at Vashti, and one that he was angry at Haman because Haman had been the one to advise him to kill Vashti. 
So in the storyline, it's Memuchan, and the rabbis say that Memuchan is really Haman, and that at this time, Haman was the one who advised him that when he was drunk and angry to kill uh, Vashti, so then he was really burning angry at Haman. I have a different explanation, and that's what I want to share with you today, and it really ties everything together. My explanation is that as we see in this entire storyline, Ahasuerus is extremely insecure about the legitimacy of his throne, and he needs to prove it to everyone, right? It's like, as we know, the people that need to show everybody, look how much I have, or look how good I am, or look how wealthy I am, right? Those are the people that are actually really insecure. And he did this for 180 days plus another seven to show everybody the royalty of his kingship. And then to cap it off, he wants to show his domination over his blue blood wife, Vashti. So obviously, obviously, Ahasuerus has got a major chip on his shoulder, right? Something about him feels and knows he doesn't really deserve to be the king. He's not really kingship material. And so he's very angry at Vashti. Why? Not only because he's angry at Vashti, but because he can't buy his delusion completely because Vashti didn't roll over. She didn't just do what he wanted. And then when he kills Vashti, so first of all, he's now lost the true connection that he had to real royalty. And now he's going to find another wife. But in the meantime, he really doesn't feel like he's proven. And he doesn't feel like anybody really feels that he's the appropriate king. So what he's really bothered by is the fact that he perceives that nobody thinks that he's real kingship and royalty. So when he realizes that Haman manipulated him, it's not just that he's angry at Haman. He's now angry at Haman for manipulating him into getting rid of his real connection to royalty. And then when it turns out that Esther really loves Ahasuerus, at least in Ahasuerus's mind, and she really builds him up and she really tries to explain to him, if you kill the Jews, it's not going to be good for your kingdom. And that's what Haman was plotting. He finally believes that Esther believes that he's the real king. Haman doesn't really believe it. So when he kills Haman, he finally feels completely validated and has confidence in his own royalty. And that's, of course, why Esther knew that she would have to continue on as queen. It wasn't going to be that after she gets rid of Haman, she could turn to Ahasuerus and say, you know, it's been swell, but I'm really Jewish. Can you please let me go back to Mordechai? That wasn't happening because the whole victory of the Jews over Haman actually depended on Ahasuerus trusting Esther to believe in him as the real king. So that's the commentary I wanted to share with everyone today. Any questions or comments? Oh, Joseph. Hi, it's, um, this reminds me of a commentary I um, listened from your father at this podium. Uh, talking about um, Vashti not really being killed, but by her losing her dignity, uh, losing her her sense of her, of her uh, ancestry, it's a, she was as good as dead. Very interesting. Yeah, because it doesn't it does not say explicitly that in the in the Megillah itself that she was killed. Right, so that, that, like I mentioned, this Midrash seems to hold that she was killed, but it's definitely possible uh, that she was not. So that's a great, yeah, it's a great, uh, a great point. 
Thank you. Yes, Ethan. At, at what point along the lines of this midrash, at what point did she develop the leprosy that kept oh, so, her? Yeah. So this midrash is not going with that story. Uh, that the, the Talmud does say that, and that's part of the reason that she refused or that she grew a tail or that she had pimples. That's definitely one of the accepted um, you know, interpretations, but this midrash is actually not going with that. It's very interesting. The Talmud says that. This midrash seems to say that it was simply her refusal. And is that, um, is, is, I guess, not studying a lot of midrash, um, is that common that the midrashim will, will deviate from, from the Talmud? Yeah. Um, yes, it, it's common within the Talmud to have you know, different opinions, and it's also common for the midrash to be different. Yes. And, and that could also do with your question from before, that if you hold that the reason for her refusal was the way she looked, then maybe she really wanted to go, right? And that was more common than to do that. Uh, if you hold that she really didn't want to go on principle, so then she was able to, her looks hadn't changed, but she was just refusing.